to the Oros Rest Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Nick Patel, a songwriter, publisher, and music professional. Alongside me have David Lowry and Chris Castle. David Lowry is a platinum-selling songwriter and performer for the bands Cracker and Kemper Van Beethoven. He currently lectures to music business students at the University of Georgia and is an ongoing artist rights activist. Chris Castle is a music lawyer in Austin, Texas, where he represents artists and music tech companies and works on public policy issues for artist rights. So this week, David and I are going to be continuing our publishing series. Last week was on the basics of music publishing with David Barbie. Today is going to be with Abby North, the founder of North Music Group based in LA. We're going to be talking about songwriter and publishing agreements. Um, and then next week, we will be talking about administration agreements, where Abby will join us yet again to talk about that in more depth. And in a sense, songwriting contracts are the counterpart to record contracts. So record contracts tend to get more light shed upon them and are deals between the artist and the record label and those two parties deal with the sound recording. Whereas in this case, we have a songwriter and a publisher who make a deal between themselves and they deal with the composition. And for songwriters, these deals can be very beneficial because they alleviate most of the issues involving copyrights for a share in royalties. In addition, it allows songwriters to focus on writing and not so much on the business end. And in regards to this episode, there are typically three types of songwriter agreements. There's a single song agreement, which is basically a TikTok agreement, as we've seen in recent years. And we also have an exclusive songwriter agreement where the publisher owns 100% of copyrights. And an exclusive co-publisher agreement where the publisher and songwriter share the copyrights. So... What exactly is included in a songwriter agreement? What makes a good songwriter agreement? And what are the incentives for a publisher and a songwriter? That's what we're going to be breaking down this episode. And so I'm now going to lead it on to the conversation between me, David, and Abby. Right, so this evening we have Abby North, founder of North Music Group based in Los Angeles. I interned for my last year at uni. Um, So it's great to see you, Abby. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Nick. It's good to see you as well. And David, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing good. Yep. Good. So, Abby, for our listeners, can you briefly talk about your history in the music industry, how you got to this point in your career and what North Music Group is all about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> can I bridge this? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I started off, <laughs> I started as a composer. Uh Quickly, I went to school, I was working in the field, I started a production musical library, began learning about administration, and then my husband, whose father was a composer, songwriter, and we had a worldwide recapture of rights in the song Unchained Melody, and I wanted to learn about international music publishing. And that's how I got into this. (laughs) Excellent. And what is actually so full circle is that I interned you for you for my senior year of university. And then in my new job on the record label, then I ran back into you to confirm yeah, about Unchained Melody, which I thought was a pretty cool for a yeah. moment. Very much um, so. Yeah. Um, so last I week- we were paying us double rate, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what it is now, but I think it was part <laughs> of a medley. <laughs> um, 
So last week we discussed uh, the basics of publishing. Uh, this week we'll be changing sides a little bit or going more deeper and talking about songwriters and songwriter publishing agreements. Um, if you're an artist, this may still be very important to you as some artists split recordings and compositions um, that they write. So a very popular example would be Ed Sheeran that he is signed as an artist for Warner Music Group, but he also has a songwriting agreement with Sony Music Publishing. So even if you are listening and you are an artist, um, this could still be viable for you. Um, you might still encounter songwriting agreements at some point in your career. And we'll go in a similar format as we did for the reco recording contracts, where we'll kind of just discuss the main stances of these contracts. Um, and if you're interested in reading up more on these agreements, then I'll leave some resources for you in the show notes. So David and Abby, songwriting contracts, I can imagine be very nuanced so i'm glad that we get to help songwriters break this down there are some stanzas which include grant of rights term and retention period minimum delivery requirements advances royalties and accountings and copyright ownership with that being said we'll just touch on the main ones to look out for um the four big ones being copyright ownership term and retention period minimum delivery requirement and royalties I want to start with copyright ownership because I feel like that's one of the biggest stanzas in these agreements. Um, Abby, could you tell us about this section and the different types of songwriting agreements that involve copyright ownership? So as I mentioned before, I just need to you know, provide the caveat mm -hmm. that typically I do admin deals so I can speak to the songwriter agreements, but I am an independent publisher. So our agreements would look different than say Warner Chapel or Sony or Universal. But having said that, <clears throat> generally speaking, there's a, there's a single song songwriter agreement, which would be for one song. There could be term agreements and the term is usually tied to delivery requirements, a certain number of copyrights. Um, so who owns the copyright uh, the publisher owns the copyright. Uh, the songwriter could be a co-publisher with the publisher doing the acquisition. Um, brand new songwriters generally are assigning the work for the life of the copyright to that publisher. Um, big songwriters who have leverage in some cases could negotiate not a life of copyright term maybe a 15-year term after which rights might revert back. Um, and also speaking on single song agreements, is that like the TikTok agreements that I've heard about recently where you kind of, they sign somebody on for a song just to, for TikTok? So somebody could go viral or a song can go viral on TikTok and then catch the attention, capture the attention of, the creative department. And so, yes, there is the potential for the creative department at a publishing company to find this viral song, sign the single song agreement, um, which is, I, 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 to I totally understand how viral, something going viral is an indicator of its popularity, but what it's not an indicator of is its long-term potential. 
And I think that's why those kinds of deals are limited to a single song as opposed to a catalog, because the publishing company really has no idea what else that songwriter might have in store. So David, related to copyright ownership, permanent retention seems to be a big factor as well. Um, you know, there's a length of time that the composition is under this agreement. Is there any sort of reversion down the line? Do you know any typical language in this situation? Well, it, in an, it could be a, a number of things. Um, so like for instance, my first proper publishing deal that I did, it was actually, a, actually, sorry, it was a co-publishing deal. So I had a little more control and co-publishing means usually the songwriter retains partial ownership, right? Um, because I retained partial ownership, it was, it's basically for, it's typically for the life of the copyright. It doesn't necessarily revert. However, in the US, under US copyright law, you can ask for your rights back after 35 years, but that's only in the US, United States for deals that were sort of executed in the United States. Um, so typically if you're selling part of your copyright, you know, to the publishing company, they're going to want it for um, quite a long time, which, or perpetuity, right? They're going to, um, and this is usually because they've given you an advance and um, also kind of if it's not a single song agreement, um, it's usually for a number of terms. It, it could be like, you know, so many songs per year and then so many years, or it could be so many songs per album and a number of albums. But um, yeah. Now I have seen some deals that um, revert when the copyright can revert or parts of the copyright might revert back to the songwriter when you've earned enough revenue. Like it might be uh, after, you know, 20 years and you're, you know, 200% recouped on the advances that you've been given, something like that. Those are, think, those are some things I see. I think also sometimes, um, there might be a clause in an agreement that says if the the songs aren't this, I don't think this would be the case for well maybe it would be for a single song but there if the song has not been recorded and released within a certain period of time then also rights might revert back to the songwriters. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting thing too because a lot of times as a songwriter, you know, you write many 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 songs but you don't necessarily um, release them all. Right. And so what happens to those songs that, um, you know, sit around, uh, maybe they're not good songs, but, you know, just sometimes they just kind of fall out of favor with the songwriters or the co-writers and you just sort of forget about them. And one day you listen to them and you go, wow, wait a minute, this is kind of good. Like I, I, I pretty regularly go back through my old like songwriting sessions to look for things that maybe weren't quite right at the time, but I'm like, ah, I got it. If I change this and I change this, then this is, this is better. So a lot of times I'm pulling songs from like 10, 15 years ago 
I mean, not a lot of times, but that does happen. And I believe there's a Neil Young song on one of his records that was like, I can't remember what song it was. I don't think it was a great song or I'd remember which song it was, but it was something that he'd written as a teenager, I believe. And it's like 40 or 50 years later, uh, he's putting it on an album, right? So it's very important if songs that aren't um, exploited, what do you do with them? And so um, some of those may revert back to the songwriter if, if say the publisher, you know, pitch them, nothing ever happened with them, pitch them to bigger writers, nothing ever happened with them, they're no longer interested in them, you know, those, those could revert back to you as a writer. Um, now, Abby, you, you probably know, um, there's two kinds of, two main kinds of songwriter deals. There's the, for songwriters that are traditional performers and they're, you know, that perform and record records and they're songwriters that are just pure songwriters and their deals look really different. Have you, have you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they do look really different. And, and I think some of this comes down to um, maybe advances or tied to record releases or, um, you know, and minimum delivery uh, requirements may also be different when the songwriter is the artist as well compared to when the songwriter is not things like that. Yeah. Well, transitioning. My... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. David. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Well, I was just going to, um, that was a smooth transition to uh, minimum delivery requirements. Could you kind of touch on what the differences could be? Um, what are the requirements uh, just to say explicitly and directly? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think the requirements, requirements vary let me say that but i think in general there will be within the term a certain number of songs and that by song we mean 100 percent of the song so if you wrote 10 percent of one song that's not going to count as a song so certain percent certain songs 100 percent and they must be delivered in general there's a suggested time i mean if it's a songwriter who's not an artist it could be a long time. If it's a songwriter who is an artist, that delivery, that number of songs being delivered is generally tied to a record release. Yeah, so, so look, yeah, go know, ahead, David. Let me give you an example of how mine, my uh, pub publishing deal, my proper straight up normal publishing deal, which was with Warner Chapel for many years, uh, was tied to me being a performer so I believe I had to have eight songs 100% on each album. And so the term started when I started writing for the new album and I got a little bit of an advance then. And then when the album was delivered, um, I got a little more of my advance. And when the album came out, I got a little more of my advance. But what I had to do is on that album, I had to have eight songs that were 100%. Actually, it was with my co-writer, Johnny. So it was actually 100% between me and my co-writer, right? So if there were four writers, right, on the song, and we only wrote 50% of it between me and Johnny, right? Um, that could possibly mean... 16 songs that we would have had to deliver for that term 
of the album. So we would only got one advance. Now then I have another friend who has a traditional um, songwriter co, you know, he just like lives in Nashville and he, he writes, uh, you know, writes songs. And so his deal was so many songs delivered to the publisher per year. I don't remember how many that was, but then it had like a second kicker, like four of them, I think had to be recorded by a major label artist, like whatever, recorded and released by a major label artist, something like that. And so that was a different delivery requirement, right? Because this person's in the business of just writing songs for other people. Was the burden of getting the songs recorded by those uh, big major label artists, was that on the publishing company and the songwriter like how because it sounds like there was responsibility on the part of the songwriter there well I'm not 100% sure just because it's just I didn't see the contract it was just sort of briefly thrown out to me that this is how it works right um I believe that one of the the one of if you know if you're like kind of a Nashville sort of line songwriter I mean they're they're basically signing you for two reasons either your connection to other art to performers right you may have written with other performers before so right. you have connections right. to them and then also your ability right mm -hmm. so i think it's on both of them though because the generally like when i wrote with this guy i was pitched him that how i got to be friends with him i was pitched him by his publisher Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I consider was considered a major artist even at that time, major label artist at the time. But you know what I mean, like. Yeah. So, but I would think if you're signing a, a deal and there's those delivery requirements, um, you should definitely not think that the label. I mean, the label that the publisher is gonna is gonna get those co-writes for you. Right. 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 Because that's so, it's such a weird, co-writing is such a weird, um, it's just such a weird science. You got to get in the room with somebody, uh, you know, maybe you don't even know, build a rapport and write a song in like three hours. Right. It's just, you know, it's pretty nutty. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of interesting as we're like we're doing having this conversation, you know, these delivery requirements on the one hand, like it triggers your advance and it triggers a, a perhaps the end of a term, but also it could like lack of um, recording could also trigger reversion. So it kind of works in all ways. Yeah, it, there there's a there's a lot of dynamics going on there. I mean, one of the things that definitely artists definitely or songwriters definitely complain about is getting stuck in term one, yeah. <laughs> not being able to go on to term two because either they haven't had tracks covered by other artists if they're a pure songwriter or if they're a, you know, performer slash songwriter that their label hasn't you know put their record out yet you know I mean right. there's, oh gosh yeah you know like I I think uh I would say more than half the time when I delivered major label records right um, I, I'd say more than half the time they were rejected at first 
There was a, I mean, I'm not, not really necessarily like, oh, this is a terrible start over, but just like, we need a couple more songs or, uh, you know, like something. So you can get stuck there for a while, right? right? Even if you do a pretty good job and you give, you know, you end up, you know, it's a pretty good record, but for some reason, like. We don't hear the single. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Actually, we all, we had this, that's pretty funny. Is <laughs> We had an instrumental that we called, we don't hear a single. Um, actually, you used it as a <laughs> guide, but um, anyways, it's funny just because exactly that, was, yeah. you know. <laughs> So, so yeah, you can get stuck in term one and you can end up, so even though it says deliver 10 songs, I mean, you might deliver 20, 25 songs before you ever get out of that or eight songs on the album, you might end up writing, you know, 25 songs, you know, for the album. And then you finally get eight on there that are you, you wrote or whatever that then the term closes, but yeah. Um, well, David, have you ever seen um, like timing come into play with the delivery requirements? Because like, I know in record contracts, um, it would it could say that like short songs, maybe under two minutes, two minutes or under, aren't subject to any mechanicals. Is there anything in delivery requirements that talk about how long a song has to be for it to count? Well, having been in a band called Camper Van Beethoven that had lots and lots of short songs um that was something that we thought about when we went to a major label we were like okay because i mean we had 55 minute songs on earlier records when we were doing our own records um and that was something that we thought about i think we let one or two go but we were like okay let's let's kind of focus on longer ones because yeah we we could have been denied royalties on uh, you know, like if it was our first album, there were like probably seven or eight songs on that album that were under two minutes. And it would have been a, it would have been a problem for us. Um, we have talked about, um, yeah, the, the, the problem though that you more run into, well, that, that's obviously a problem if you have a short song, but uh, um, when you go to, like if you go over five minutes, the mechanical royalty calculation gets different. Um, do you, do you want to explain that, um, Abby, or should I? I go I don't go know ahead. Exactly how it, how it works, but it, it it's it's the mechanical royalty calculation, which is your royalty for a song. It's basically you get like an in the case of physical product, you get like another penny and something thrown on, right? So what you. Yeah, it's like um, on the mechanical side, like at the MLC, I think they're doing, oh gosh, what's the calculation? I'm, it's like another, is it one, it's not one and a half, is it 1.1, like for every, I can't remember how they're calculating it now, but yes, every, every minute over five and now, now. Yeah, it might be a 10th of a, a penny yeah. or something like that, they, they get, or 1.1. I don't know. There's a calculation, but yes. when you go over five minutes, your mechanical royalty goes up, but record companies generally don't like that. They're not crazy about that. Um, so often what they do is they cap 
the total amount of mechanical royalties that they pay you. So they essentially take that overage out of the other songs on the record. Right. Right. You know, it's interesting because on the performance side, uh, well, there's there's a few things that I was thinking actually just to come back. So we were talking about songwriters, right? We were talking about well, what happens if you write the song and it doesn't get uh, recorded, and then forty years later you're you're looking back at it and thinking this is a really great song. And I was thinking about like, for example, my father-in-law scores for two thousand one Space Odyssey or some of the other movies where he had been hired to score a movie and then his score didn't get used. And so everything reverted back to him, both the compositions and the sound recordings. That's a good contract. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's- right? I mean, That's great. Super cool. It's really cool. Yeah. And, and then we have the unpublished, like, you know, unpublished clauses in some other cases, like I think even with Spartacus, we might have some of the cues because they weren't included in the film. Um, but coming back to, so, so a lot of serious music can be five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. And so on the performance side also, they do have tiers. The PROs have a certain rate up to five minutes and then it, I think it doubles up to at 10 minutes and I think it might triple at 15 minutes. I think that's how they're doing it. And I think the different PROs actually might treat it a little differently, but conceptually, yeah, every five minutes is, is an increase. Um, and so moving toward a different clause would be royalties. Um, Abby, I know we're going to talk about this in more depth in terms of uh, admin royalties and how that works. Um, but could you briefly kind of talk about it a little bit and then talk about how that compares to the traditional songwriter agreements? Well, so we always have the same kinds of royalty types, right? Or income types. We have performance, which is generally collected directly by the writer from the PRO, which is great. So, so songwriter agreements in general do not get recouped from. Oh, we should uh, mention this. We should really, this is an important point to make. Songwriters, they're, you know, you have mechanical royalties, you have public performance royalties, and then you have like licensing things, right? Public performance royalties really are paid out by your PRO, your songwriter, your performing rights organization, BMI, ASCAP, and CSAC. And generally, your songwriter publishing agreement shouldn't touch those, right? Yep. And, and I'll the, let you go. Do you explain from there? So, yes. Yeah. So, so part of the reason they don't touch them is. Um, while this is not part of copyright, it's part of the industry norm that there's a songwriter share and then there's a publisher share of public performance. And so, as David said, the, the PRO generally pays the writer's share to the writers directly and the publisher's share to the publisher. Um, there are some exceptions. One exception would be if the publisher has direct licensed performance royalties. And, and that's one thing you want to make sure in your agreement is that if the publisher does direct license and that includes your writer share performance that they have to pay it to. Um, the other, um, what was the other example I was going to come up with? Um, uh, sorry, I'm blanking. Oh yeah, I know, buyouts, uh, contract buyouts. So let's say, and not just buyouts, but 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 um, royalty stream buyouts. Now we're seeing that with like Hypnosis and KKR and all these checkbook publishers, they're acquiring 
royalty streams. It used to be, at least in the US and probably outside of the US, that a writer couldn't even assign uh, his or her writer share to somebody else. Even if you had an agreement, often the PROs wouldn't accept it, <laughs> but that's changed. So now a writer could say, all right, Merck is gonna collect my writer share now because he's just given me this big, huge payout. Um, that would be an example where a writer no longer collects, directly collects a, a performance royalty. Yeah, so, so actually there's an interesting thing about the public performance royalty that was in my publishing contract. I was kind of surprised about, but I get, but somebody told me it's actually fairly normal it's like that basically the publisher in some cases can do a direct license for your public performance royalty but right. they'll still give them to you right they'll uh -huh. still pass you through your public performance royalties and i'm not sure what the advantage is but at some point uh warner with my publishing deal uh did some kind of direct deal with Apple mm -hmm. so that suddenly Apple wasn't on my BMI statement. It moved over to my Jeez, Warner right. statement, my public, it was public performance royalty. So Warner did some sort of direct deal with Apple. I still got my public performance royalty. They didn't right. take anything out of it. You just didn't it get it through. Yeah. Now I don't know if that's because Warner maybe got advances or if there was, you know, they got more than they really, you know, they got an advance, they got more than they really, I don't know what the deal was, but it was within the realm of my contract that they could do that. And you know, the other, the, the um, scenario, it, the, the scenario in which it could be really good is in parts of Asia, where right. we just have not been successful at collecting performance royalties from the local PRO, but some some big publishers have been able to negotiate really substantial blanket licenses and, and that include the writer share performance. And that could be really lucrative. Okay. Well, it didn't seem to change very much. Okay. You know? So I, I didn't really object to it, but you know, so usually uh, songwriter contracts, the publisher shouldn't touch your public performance royalties, but they can under some certain situations. Right. So but you, but, watch but you out do, for, yeah. Sorry, David, go ahead. I just said, just be aware of that, you know. And, and what I was gonna say is be aware of it and make sure that the language in your agreement um, accounts for those scenarios and that you get your money. So another royalty type or income type is mechanical reproduction. So mechanical reproduction would be with a physical media like CD or vinyl or more commonly now, the streaming thing. Um, and the pretty much everywhere, well, let me say in the US, the uh, publisher generally collects the mechanical royalty and generally passes half through to the writers. In some territories, um, sometimes the writer is able to affiliate with the mechanical society and directly collect the mechanical themselves. Um, in some cases, I recommend that. Like if you have the opportunity to correct, collect directly, that's great. In other cases where it might not be as good as if you're with a publisher that's an aggressive income tracker, then you may actually want them to be collecting because you want them tracking. Um, so 
it's it's something that uh, you want to look at, I think. So there's mechanical reproduction. <clears throat> there's um, print. Print usually now um, is a license. It's treated as a license. It wasn't always that way. It used to be like pennies. And and the I think the publishers were getting, I think it's like 12 and a half to 15% from the print publishers. There were separate companies that were print publishers, and then the music publishers were licensing to those print publishers. Music publishers were receiving a percentage of wholesale, and then they were passing or paying royalties to songwriters or composers at kind of a penny rate. I don't know, maybe seven to 12 cents, something like that. Um, and then there's folio, which would be books of sheet music. Um, and now there's digital lyrics. So digital sheet music, digital tablature, and those are all licenses. So um, if, like a- Just plain old lyric display like genius.com, you know, yeah. it's just- it's just kind of, the, it's the lyrics thrown out there with no, which a lot of people look at. I was always surprised how big the web search is for that. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so then, uh, actually, we just got a request today for uh, from our print publisher. And, and one of the clauses that I put into our agreement is that I get to review all arrangements. Um, and that was really important to us, particularly for um, melody, because the lyric as sung by almost everybody is not actually as written. Um, there's an extra and added that really, really irks the son of the lyricist. So I always check in the first, the first thing I check in the arrangements is that they they are using the lyric as written. And then the second is just to make sure that kind of harmonically, melodically, it's not too deviant, that <laughs> it's pretty true to what Alex North wrote. Um, so then there's uh, uh, synchronization. So not actually the copyright, but it's a royalty type, an income type, and it's a really important one. And synchronization would be the use of songs and recordings um, in audiovisual productions. Um, and the reason in, in music publishing, we're very, very um, uh, restricted by in, in what we can earn because everything is, is government. Um, the rates are, are set by the yeah. government. So synchronization is the anomaly. Synchronization, we get to negotiate it based on the market. Um, and also we often um, will say there's, it, we want a most favored nations structure, which means, for example, if it's a, another song, we'll say that no other song can be paid more than we are. If, if you do pay another one more, then you have to pay us that same rate. And same thing with sound recordings. We might say that if any sound recording is earning more, um, then we get that same fee as well. That's huge. I mean, that's, that's a huge help. Uh, synchronization, you can't count on sync but when it happens, it can lead to very, very um, significant spikes in revenue. And also synchronization can drive the other royalty types. It drives 
mechanicals, it drives print. And, and the reason that happens and performance, of course, the reason it happens is because somebody hears a song on their favorite show and then they want to, you know, they go over to Spotify to stream it. They might buy the vinyl now. Um, they might, like David said, look online for the lyrics. They might want the sheet music. They, you know, so there's, there's so many um, other benefits to having a sync happen. And yeah. 50, 50, sorry for the writer publisher it's general it's a license so it's generally split evenly between the publisher and the songwriter yeah that's what i was going to say is um and the other reason we like this as songwriters is it's a lump you know you get a big lump sum of money <laughs> generally i mean it, it depends on how big the copyright or the song is and stuff like that but you get a lump sum and you usually split it between the publisher and the writer now Sometimes writers are unrecouped, you know, like you may have taken advances and you haven't paid back your advances. And sometimes you'll get a sync license like this and you as a writer won't necessarily uh, get anything from the sync license. It just goes to uh, paying off your recouped balance or something like that. However, so I don't, um, I don't necessarily uh, say you should do this, but sometimes if you just get a little hesitancy in your voice with your publisher, <laughs> um, they'll, well, I don't know. I didn't really like that film. How is it going to be? You get a little hesitancy in your voice. It's like, and I'm unrecouped and I, I don't really see what the upside is in it for me. They might pay you over the terms of your contract, they might say, let's just say you, you get a really good sync license uh, and you get, you're getting, uh, it's gonna be $40,000 for, uh, for the song. It's a, big, a, a, a very featured track or something. That's what the sync license is gonna be. But you, and half of that 20,000 would go to you, but you're unrecouped, say $25,000. So you're not actually gonna see that money. Sometimes just having a little hesitancy in your voice or just questioning whether it's, you know, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm really going to get anything from this, you know, and stuff like that. Your publisher may say, look, why don't we just give you, you know, 5,000 on top of it. We'll give you 5,000, even though you're not recruited, right? That is known to happen. Okay. But your contract may not say that, right? Interesting. Mm -hmm. There's there's another type of, well, there's a couple other types. One of the things that we see now also are sort of bundles of rights that are licensed. Um, it might be user-generated platforms. It might be platforms like Snap, um, things where we don't actually, we, we might not be able to arrive at a consensus about all the individual, each of the individual rights. So we'll say the right to use or the right, you know, the right to do this in this context. And those are licenses again. So they're typically, there might be an advance, there might be a settlement and those are generally split 50-50. Split so between the writers and the publishers. And then also there's, and this is not a whole lot of money but there's um, DART. So a royalty paid on, um, like uh, digital audio tape or, or recordable TV or the devices that are used to record these. And um, the PROs may be collecting part of that 
and so that would go directly to the writer it wouldn't be you couldn't a publisher couldn't use couldn't recoup with it because it would go directly to the writer um those are those, those have definitely diminished um over time because certainly their streaming has just blown up and there isn't as much recording but the other thing we see and that can be very substantial particularly in france and some other european territories is private copy so not here we call it dart digital audio um there it's private copy and it really can be somewhat substantial and the one so other what this is that, this is the legacy of the the royalty on blank cassette tapes right yep, yep. yeah so uh, often my students like well, you know, you didn't get royalties when people made, you know, mixtapes for their friends. It's like, well, actually, we we did. Yeah. <laughs> there was a, a royalty on blank tape. Well, you don't know what's going on that tape, but it's done on sort of a sampling market share basis or something like that. I don't know how yeah. they essentially arrive at it. But that's another. Like, so what you're saying is there's there's a royalty like that that still happens. Yeah much of the rest of the world and i assume that that, that goes for essentially uh you know copying on your computer or whatever like right, that exactly so loyalty applied to that yeah i mean i have yes some of the legacy copyrights that i administer do really well particularly in france i mean like really if france is just um very very big with that royalty the one other thing like in the us you know we talked about mechanicals but we haven't talked about broadcast mechanicals so in canada there's a mechanical for radio and outside of canada in some european territories there may there may be a, a mechanical for when a music a piece of music is broadcast on television so within an audiovisual production and that in addition to a perform public performance royalty yeah i understand germany is is, yeah. is nice for that so. germany uh uh france uk can be very good i mean and and so um that's i gotta say that 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 can be one of the benefits of actually having a publisher like that might be if i'm a songwriter who's who's getting syncs and I don't want to just affiliate at say BMI and the MLC because I won't be collecting. I've got no way to collect my broadcast mechanicals outside of the U.S. So it could be a revenue stream that. And also, if you're getting a lot of radio in Canada, you, you may want to take advantage of a publisher who's good at collecting. There are all kinds of royalties out there. Mm -hmm. Yes, and and a publishing deal generally in that they own generally a proper publishing deal they own all or part of the copyright they're incentivized to collect all these royalty streams um, for themselves and hopefully you get your share as a songwriter as well too right yeah right well to sort of round this all up um and again abby thanks so much for coming on with us um David, you have one side as an experience in a songwriter and artist, and Abby, you are a publisher. Could you both just give some general advice for songwriters who are maybe trying to get a songwriter deal or any advice? Um, it could be with what we've talked about or something outside of what we talked about um, that you think that they should look out for specifically with these agreements. Make sure you have a really good lawyer and make sure you have a really good lawyer who's doing a lot of these agreements today because everything is changing 
and everything from the terms, the norms, standards, you know, whatever, it's, it's moving really quickly. So you have a, have an attorney you trust and who's, who's doing a lot of songwriter agreements. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I second that one as well too. Um, I, I just like to point out, um, yeah, I mean, because it's all based on what is standard, you know, what everybody else is, is, is paying or what everybody's getting or where the revenue's coming from and stuff like that. And you need to be fairly up to date to really uh, read a contract. Um, I would also like to say this for, uh, for performer songwriters, in your recording, you may have a great publishing deal, right? But your performer contract with the record label can take some of your publishing away. So don't forget that your recording contract often has something called a controlled composition clause, which may cut your royalty back it may require you in certain situations, oh, God forbid, but it does happen, uh, collateralize your songwriting royalties with your recording debt. That is, they could stop paying um, songwriting royalties because you, under certain conditions, if you have recording debt. And my story that I always tell is I didn't, small clause in my contract never thought about it but apparently um under my recording contract if we took tour support and didn't complete a tour they would use our songwriting royalties <laughs> to pay back the tour support <laughs> so i missed some songwriting royalties for a few quarters so watch out just remember that recording contracts can also generally they don't but they can have little clauses in there that govern your songwriting, in particular, the controlled composition clause. So make sure your attorney, your songwriter attorney also gets a look at your recording contract, even though it's typically not their domain. It may be, it may have something in it. Mm -hmm. Good advice. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Abby, for coming on. We really appreciate oh. talking to you and the listeners will have to listen to your voice again, or we'll get to listen <laughs> to your voice again when we talk about admin deals. Um, so stay tuned for that. Thank you so much, both of you. I really appreciate you including me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lotus Right to Watch. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, if you'd like to join in on the conversation, you can add us on Twitter at Lotus Rights or on Facebook at Lotus Rights Watch, or you can check out our website at LotusRightsWatch.com. If you missed that or you want more information on this episode, please check out the show notes for further research. We will catch you again next time where we watch Forest Rights. Cheers. <laughs>